Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast, and we are back with our first show of 2019. With you as always, my name is Ryan McGee, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, and joining me back from what seemed like a month in beautiful Finland, our new ambassador to Finland, Jonathan Havercroft in Southampton, England. Jonathan, have you have you recovered from your your month long adventure in Finland? Well, it was only twelve days, but I'm back. What did it <laughs> did it feel like twelve days, or did it feel like you were there forever? It felt less. I mean, to be honest, it just became a blur. Uh, like there was there was very little downtime in the end because I was also uh, roped into helping. Uh, coach the girls a little bit like I kind of shadow coached their coach because he was a new one so I was on the bench I think I did 15 games and I had had several three game days in there which were uh long (laughs) because that's basically that's basically about 10 hours at the arena uh and this in between that you just eat and maybe try to catch a little nap um but yeah it was good I mean it was fun we both our teams qualified for playoffs which um was unexpected I'd say and, uh, you know, we're, I think both teams are pretty happy with, with where they finished up in the end. All right. So, yeah, let's get right into it. So, Jonathan, you were at the World Junior B tournament in Loya, Finland at, uh, I guess, some big training academy that they have in Finland. Is it for all sports or just ice sports or, or what was the deal there? Yeah, it's it's a giant. It's it's called Kisigalio. It's kind of how it's in my bad Finnish how it's pronounced. And so it's a giant camp um, in the woods. It's it's about a ten minute drive off the motorway, just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's on the on a lake. They do biathlon, cross country skiing. Um, they have a giant arena, which is why the curling's there. They've got this giant gym complex with like you know basketball courts. Volleyball courts, uh, giant gym. So it's, it's kind of like a sports center. And the reason the WCF hosts it there is they also have a lot of on-site accommodation, kind of dorm-style accommodation. So it's it's cheap for the teams to, to stay there. It's got a giant dining hall, so kind of like you get an all-in package. And uh, the rink's an Olympic-sized hockey rink, so they can fit six fixed sheets six sheets of curling in there pretty well. So that's why they do it there. And they've signed a five-year contract. So as long as I'm coaching an England junior team uh, in the next four years, I'll probably be spending a good chunk of my January at that place. So unless they get up and stay up in A. So. I was about to say, is that even more uh, more motivation to get out of the B pool and stay in the A pool? Well, they, I saw I was chatting with the Scottish coach a fair bit, and uh, like the, the Scottish junior girls got relegated. And it's the second time they've been relegated in the last three years. And he's like, "I just want to get out of here, get up, and never come back to this place again." <laughs> Was his it's, line to me. So, I mean, it <laughs> seems like the accommodations aren't that bad. But yeah, I can. I guess twelve days in Finland with very little sunlight. I guess will do that to you. 
It's, I mean, it's fine. I mean, it's nothing, there's no complaints to WCF. Like if you're looking for a place to host an event of that size and it's like, it's 46 junior teams and it's probably going to keep growing the way the game's spreading globally. Um, it's the place to have it. Uh, you, you need six sheets minimum. Um, this year they expanded it to an extra day. So this year we were actually starting on January 2nd. Normally that's the travel day and team meeting day, but they had the first draw at eight o'clock on the second. And to be honest, if if a few more teams sign up next year, uh, it'll probably have to expand it by another day. So uh, it's it's just the reality of of where curling's growing and kind of these new emerging markets. So, all right. So you got your team. You were coaching the the England men's team and helping out with the England England women's team. And I think only, well, was it only you guys in Russia were the two teams that sent teams to both playoffs so you qualified for the quarterfinals both england teams unfortunately lost in the quarterfinals um and i guess the thing about losing in the quarters is if you you if you win that quarterfinal round you get two shots at making the a pool right so yeah the quarterfinal games is yeah so the quarterfinal game is kind of i I would it's not like pressure off after because you could still go over two but the quarterfinal game is the big hump um and I'd say, you know, like I'm talking, talking to the Scottish coach, he was like, we're just terrified we lay an egg in the quarterfinal game, <laughs> right? He's like, like, if you're one of the favorites, that's kind of probably where you're at. So, yeah, the quarterfinal game is a tough game. Um, but to make – like we weren't – so like for the boys, I guess I, got, like, I can reveal our goals now. Like we kind of can't kind of keep oh, yeah. the chest for the team. So our goals were – to win three games was kind of our initial goal because last year we oh, won wow. two games. So that that was kind of our base expectation. And we always set a stretch goal as in like, if we achieve that, what are we going to do? And so we said, well, so our stretch goal was then making playoffs. So yeah, we, we achieved both of those goals. And uh, it's, it was still tough to lose the quarterfinal game. Like it wasn't like anyone was happy afterwards and like things kind of fell apart pretty quickly. I'm not sure if you People saw the line score or read the report up on the ECA Facebook page. But, you know, we, we were kind of went into the halftime down two with Hammer and then just everything just fell apart <laughs> after the break in, in two quick ends. It was over in six. And uh, that was against that was against Italy and your good friend Soren Grand, right? Yeah. So I was on the bench with Soren. So that was that was for me an interesting experience. So uh, he's a friendly guy. Uh, so it wasn't like, you know, anything hostile or whatever. But you know, sitting there, seeing what they do, and there's a jump, right? That just in terms of how they approach pregame practice, like the the technical ability, you know, just there's a lot of little things that you're like, okay, that's that's kind of the next level up. Did your team kind of take notice of that? Yeah, I think they do. I think they're actually pretty smart curlers and they they do pick up a lot of stuff right and they they know like we were talking a little bit about um the carving technique and and what path to sweep on like well here's the path uh, all the pro teams do so they're kind of observant of those things and they take it on board which i think is why they uh why they do so well to be honest like why why we probably overshot our expectations, but we also got a lot of comments throughout the week. Like we certainly weren't favorites for the playoffs and, Mm -hmm. you know, people came up and said, we never saw two England teams making the playoffs. So that, that I think caught a lot of countries off guard and a lot of countries that came in with expectations and with kind of frankly, professional full-time coaches running their programs 
uh, didn't do that well. So for us to be entirely self-funded with volunteer coaches, uh, I think that was kind of quite an accomplishment. And you guys, I mean, this has been a pretty good year before we get into who qualified for world juniors. It's been a pretty good year for English curling, right? You've got the, the men's team is about to, uh, qualified out of European bees and they're about to go play in the world qualifying event. The women's team did pretty well, came just short of getting out of the B pool. The two junior teams, um, made the playoffs unexpectedly kind of unexpectedly. And then in the mixed doubles, uh, Team Fowler, who is, I guess, the first English team to be accepted into the British curling program, is out on tour and winning games and did pretty well at that Qualico event in Banff not too long ago. It's been, I mean, we're only in January and it's been kind of a heck of a year for English curling, right? Yeah, I think it's been, yeah, I think, uh, all, I, I think a lot of those things were would be kind of surprises when you start the season, right? Like, like Andy Reid's been cracking at it for a long time, and so I think I'm, I'm really happy for him that he, he kind of finally punched through to the A pool. But the, the typical story for an English team is kind of top of the B pool, either just missing playoffs or losing out in the, the playoff semis. Seems to be what's what the pattern's been like over the last five to seven years. So. To finally punch through and get an English team back up into the A pool in Euros is a big accomplishment. Um, we've, I guess, like since we switched to the World Bees, um, we've never had a junior team qualify for playoffs. We did have a junior women's team make Worlds. I want to say four years ago or five years ago now, uh, but a, a little while back, and that was kind of a good performance. And that team kind of coming, they kind of came up together through juniors and kind of got a little bit better each year like they went out at 14 and got slaughtered but then by the time they were 19 20 um they were certainly strength of the european challenge challenge round which is what they did back in those days so uh, yeah it's good to see so it's good for good for english curling uh a good little bit of growth are you guys taking motivation from uh from gareth southgate and in the in the soccer team finally winning in in penalty kicks and advancing in in the knockout stage at the world cup uh, I don't, I mean, we, we had a little joke. I remember I chuckled something like curling's coming home after one of our, our big wins, <laughs> <laughs> but I think Felix was having none of it. He was like, no. <laughs> so, um, I, I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't say that had like any factor at all. I think like, at least for the boys I coach, like they started at 13 and this year's team was really committed. Like they, we, we agreed to a plan at the start of the season in terms of what we're going to play in, and they all showed up for all that. But also, in addition to the training sessions I run, I said, well, you really have got to start committing to, to regular practice on your own. And so I'd write up drills for them. And they, they basically went to the rink once or twice a week all through the autumn and kind of committed to that kind of regular self-discipline of practice. And ultimately, that's, that's what separates in my mind, someone who does well in competitive events from not is it's the discipline to go out and throw stones on your own. You know, how frequent that is, you know, it's going to vary. So if obviously for slam teams, you got to be out pretty much every day of the week, but for junior teams, I think at the level we're at, like if, if you can get the full team committing to regular weekly practice, you'll, you'll do well. And especially if it's self-motivated, I think that that to me says a lot that they don't need someone nagging them. They're they're motivated enough to go out and throw, and so I think that that's what paid dividends in this case. 
I did notice since I started following Team Sugden on Instagram that they do put in a lot of practice time, um, even if you're not around. So good on them for doing as well as they did and making playoffs. Are they are they all back next year or how many of them are, are any of them aging out? No, they're all 17. So we've got three more years with this team and two of them actually have an extra year after that. Um, as long as you keep winning juniors in England or you guys pretty, or is this pretty much the only junior team right now? We'll probably have a couple of other teams enter junior playdowns. I, I, we don't, I mean, one of the things I'm actually, I don't want to say worried about, but I've kind of, you know, I've got to think both sides, right? So I don't want all other junior boys run off by a pretty strong team running out yeah. for the next few years. So the challenge is going to be how do we keep other juniors engaged when there are, there is starting to be some pretty significant separation between this team and the younger juniors coming up. So we're doing some things at the rink and training and trying to find other events for those teams. So, and hopefully get them to close the gap so they're not just destroyed, but that's, that's going to be a bit of a challenge, I think. Yeah. Cause then if those guys age out and you've got no one behind them, Exactly. That, that's the problem. That's the problem for a country like England, right? Yeah. And that, that's basically when I got involved uh, with the coaching, that's when Ben Fowler and his gang aged out. And so the rink manager came to me and said, we literally have no one for juniors for next year. Like we, we were, they were debating whether or not to enter a team kind of thing. They're there at that level. Uh, and so I, I kind of said I'd do it, and it's been kind of a really rewarding experience doing this. But one of the things when I started doing, I was adamant about is a, it's not going to be a selected team. If even if it's just throwing some warm bodies out there to challenge that team, they're going to have to earn it. And that b, we're not just trying to select one team and get them kind of put all the resources in them to do well internationally. We want to grow the junior program, so we do always have more juniors coming up through the ranks. So. And we've had some good breaks. There's a there's a guy, I'm not sure if I mentioned him before, but Owen Reese uh, from Beacon Academy. So he's kind of started a high school uh, program at his high school, high, high school curling program. And he brings kids out. I think he's got like 44 kids now coming out every Tuesday afternoon after school and they play a little league there. And so that's, that's kind of our biggest source of, of kind of up and coming juniors. And that's kind of in the 13 to 16 range. And then a couple other schools are starting up programs too. So that's, that's good kind of grassroots growth. I'm a big believer for curling and growing the base and then the pyramid, the peak of the pyramid will take care of itself. It's always how I've, I've kind of viewed these things. So that's the approach we're trying to take in the hope that it'll lead to kind of long-term consistent performance internationally and also grow the game domestically. Good deal. And uh, I guess they play at that, is it that new uh, rink that opened in Preston, I guess? Uh, no. So Preston just launched their junior program. I just saw a few ads on social media about that. So I, ours is all at Fenton's rank in this little okay. three shooter. So Beacon's, so three of the kids on this team are all from Beacon. So th- on the the junior boys team I coach, so Joe Felix and Archer are all uh, out of Beacon, but they've all graduated now. So they're all at, at in the UK what's called college, which is like the two years between what in the US would be high school and university. So hmm. uh, they finish a bit earlier here for high school, and they have a two year period where they're doing like a, a course that's kind of pre-university so they're at that stage right now so the team that you guys lost to was italy and that was one of the teams that made it out of the men's side 
at the Junior Bs. Uh, the three teams that qualified on the men's side were New Zealand, Italy, and China. New, for New Zealand, it's their first time at the World Junior A event, for lack of a better term, uh, on the men's or women's side ever. So that's great for them, and that's growth of the game um, in a region that has been playing for a while. Um, and one of those one of those players, I think, is actually on the senior New Zealand team that played at PACCs and is going to be playing on the world qualifier event that we'll talk about um, here later. So congratulations to New Zealand on making history for their program. And it would be kind of cool to see to see if they can stay in the A pool um, when Junior Worlds comes around. On the women's side, Scotland got back in. Russia, who was another one of the teams that you were talking about that had been relegated, they got back in. And Japan qualified on the women's side. So were any of those teams surprising to you? New Zealand, even though you know it's their first time qualifying, they made the playoffs at last year's Junior Bs, um, and they've been kind of creeping up, creeping up at this event, I guess. Were there, were there any teams on either side that really surprised you? And then who really impressed you at this tournament among the teams that that were there? Did no, I mean maybe New Zealand winning it outright was a bit of a surprise. I think so. One of the things that's interesting here is there is a pattern of, and this is the same juniors everywhere, right? Is that um, as you get older, your skills progress, and so um, most most kind of elite junior performances anywhere in the world are going to happen in that 18 to 21 range, right? And if someone gets that extra year, if they're like, they're born right after the July 1st cutoff date, like they're kind of like say a July or August or September birthday, they tend to, it's a, that tends to be a bit of like, you know, men amongst boys kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, every time I've coached a junior team with a 21 year old, that team's performed significantly above expectation, just having that person who's basically an adult at that stage. So New Zealand to me was kind of, they were in that, that kind of peak age zone. Um, and so, and they've been going for several years. So I think for a developing country like New Zealand, that's exactly when you want to peak and punch through. So uh, that wasn't surprising to me. Um, I mean, Italy, Italy kind of bounces up and down. Like they're almost always a playoff team. So for them to go up, wasn't surprising. Same with China. I'd mm-hmm. say if there were surprises, it was Russia and Japan. If you kind of asked me kind of before the week, so Japan didn't even make the playoffs and Russia, Russia not getting out was a little bit of a surprise um, on the men's side. Women's side, I think, you know, like I said, Scotland was probably the favorites to go back up leading into the event. Um, they weren't as dominant a performance as, say, Sophie Jackson. Like when Sophie Jackson came down that year, it was like none of the games were close. Um Scotland brought a couple down to the eighth end, but they were kind of in control, but they they were always kind of going to win those games. So it was a little bit closer. Uh, and Japan and Russia were like the two very strong technical teams. So they, you know, I wasn't surprised. If you told me they'd won, won at the end of the week, I wouldn't have been surprised either. Uh, Ch- perhaps on the women's side, China, well, China's already up. So who else was, who was the fourth place team? I'm kind of drawing a blank on the women's. Uh, Hungary. Oh yeah, Hungary's kind of interesting. I mean, they've got really good. They've got like it's one of these countries where you're like you don't think they're going to be great, just kind of going off the national reputation. But whoever they have coaching them there, it's like they they come out and they've got textbook slides, really good releases. So you look at them and they've got 
good technique. So they were they were in a lot of games all week too. So you know, I think they've still got like years left as well. And then there's then there's some scary good young teams. Like we played the Danish team and beat them, but they're all twelve and thirteen. They're like all four foot tall and less. <laughs> I was about to say, I looked at that. That was one of the things I was going to ask you about. So I looked at the team photos of who you guys were playing, and the Danish yeah. team looked like they had two kids on this team. They've got, they had three. So the Danish team was, so A, they're going to be very scary good. Like the Quiz, the Skip, the Skip, he's 13, and he's got, like, he was calling a smart game, really good technique. It's just, like, basically. Uh, well, a Joe made a crazy run back. Like I, he, he when he called that, I was like, I don't think that's there, and he nailed it, and that basically got us the big end that won the game. And then two, it's like it, you kind of get down to the late end situations. I think it's a bit it, there is an intimidation factor when you're 13 playing 17, 18 year olds, right? And I think that was the difference over the course of the week for them. But they've got good coaching. Denmark's normally one of those teams that contends for promotion, so uh, like that. That's a team that a that a will eventually get up to the A's, like no doubt in my mind. And b, you know, keep your keep your ears out for the name Chris because he's like gonna be a contender for a world championship in three four years time. Well, then it looks like well, and we'll get into the world qualifier here in just a second. But it looks like I get, I assume that's his dad that's coaching the senior yeah. Denmark team, right? Yeah, it's his dad. It's his dad who's played for Denmark, and I think played in the Olympics too for Denmark. So he's like a he's like a good curler, and all those kids are sons of like Danish national curlers. So yeah, there's there's teams like that. Uh, we played Chinese Taipei, and they're all they're actually mostly from Vancouver, uh, Taiwanese uh, Vancouverites. Like the families are tiny Taiwan expats living in Vancouver, and so they're like they live in Vancouver. They just started curling like last spring. Uh, and they're like 15. And if you're living in Vancouver and you're motivated and you go out and play in junior spiels there and take access to the coaching there, like they'll be good in a few years, right? They actually, they actually offered, but they put a, a really strong showing on against the Korean team, like lost seven, five, like a close game in Korea. Korea probably was the favorite going in out of our pool this kind because of, they'd come down and they were a strong technical team. They just didn't quite get, get it over the line in the playoffs, but um, you know, so Chinese Taipei, they offered, but like they're all 14, 15. So like in a couple of years, if they stick with it, they could be a strong team. Right. And then Hong Kong last year brought in two 20 year olds at the back end from Toronto who are kind of like Hong Kong expats living in Toronto. So eligible kind of through, through citizenship rules and and that team made playoffs last year those those two had aged out and they were back down to like 12 year olds again right so they didn't do that well this year so that happens a lot at the b level right these small countries a couple of people age out and you can see the country go from being a playoff contender to, to falling off the map pretty quickly all right so what's what's next for you guys or rest. <laughs> we had, we actually came back Friday night, and um, our club league is Saturday, and uh, we basically had to go play those games because if we pull all the juniors out of that, the league falls apart. So they they were troopers and showed up and played. They were not the best out and didn't put in great performances, but. They showed up, which to me, that's kind of props for that. And then we always do our training sessions after the monthly uh, club league. So we did the training session today and then 
they were super grumpy today. <laughs> but still <laughs> up. I, I, you know, to me, that's like, that's impressive, right? That you actually show up to, you know, there's like ultimately it's all voluntary. So you can't force them to do anything, but um, yeah, that's the equivalent of a bag skate, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I, I don't control that part of the schedule. I think we might want to look at that detail next year, but that's for the South of England curling club to review that. <laughs> um, but uh, I think rest basically for the next few weeks. And then we actually do our junior championships in the end of April. So, you know, maybe in a month's time, we'll, we'll sit down and plot out what needs to be done for those championships. But, uh, and then assuming they win that, um, then, you know, we, we use the summer to plan out what we do to ramp up for next year's junior B's. And you've got, you have the, the English mixed doubles championship this weekend, right? I got English mixed doubles this weekend, then men's late February and then mixed mid-March. So, so you're, you're and you're playing mixed doubles with friend of the podcast, Lisa Farnell, right? Yeah. And are you guys, so, so will you guys finish second? I know the Fowlers are going to win, but are you guys going to finish second? You're putting all your money on the Fowlers. All right. It's fine. Uh, I, uh, well, I'm looking. I'm looking at the list. <laughs> I'm looking at the list of teams. Like this is why I'm your friend, Jonathan. Is I'm looking at the list of teams that the Fowlers beat in Banff, um, and yeah. I think all of those teams are better than you. Um, so <laughs> I'm I'm just assuming. Well, how'd your how'd your friend Goaoki? How did your friend Goaoki do uh, in the Junior Bs compared to the team I coach? Uh, Goaoki did did not make the playoffs. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. The, team, yeah. the team that I talked up during the last during the last podcast did not make the playoffs of the Junior Bs, and yes. you you also didn't throw any rocks at the That's World That is true. Uh, we'll we'll see. I mean, we'll just see how it goes. I'm not making any predictions. I, I will I will put my money on you to finish second. To finish second. All right. What happens if we finish first? Oh man, what can we what? I don't know what what kind of are we doing another bad beer bet on if you on if you actually beat the Fowlers. Oh, it's gonna be worse than a bad beer bet. Yeah, that's true. If you <laughs> you gotta wear like a Virginia shirt to work or something. <laughs> I don't even joke about that stuff. Uh, anyway, I will I will eat haggis if you beat the Fowlers. All right, you'll eat haggis on the podcast. I'll eat haggis on the podcast if you. <laughs> All right, tournament over the ballot. All right, how about if, if we win the, the tournament? If we win the tournament, you will eat haggis. Yes. All right, I'm playing in the haggis bonspiel uh, in February. <laughs> so if I win a haggis, <laughs> I'll post the haggis to you, and you got to eat that. I, I think we've joked on this podcast about oh yeah, there's a lot of the bonspiels that you talk about that sound awesome that I would love to come over there and play in. Uh, the haggis spiel is not one of them. I don't think you can get me over to Scotland for the haggis spiel. You don't want a haggis. <laughs> no, I don't. You get a little mini haggis if you enter along with a dram of whiskey. But then if you win it, you got a giant haggis. I mean, I've gone to see Virginia Tech play at LSU and gotten drunk and had Bodan. So that's probably that's probably the U.S. equivalent to haggis would be Bodan sausage from Louisiana. So I've had that, but I was all kinds of not sober when that happened. All right, so it's going to be an episode of you getting very drunk and eating haggis. 
if you win if you win the English mixed doubles championship. Wow, yes. that's pressure, pressure, man. So if that if if the if the opportunity to go play in a world championship didn't didn't motivate you to to go win this weekend, making me eat haggis should put you over over the top, right? All right, I love it. All right, so we just spent 30 minutes talking about World Junior Bs, so we should probably move on to something else before we lose the three listeners that we probably had coming into this, right? <laughs> sure. What else, what else is going on in the world of curling, Ryan? I mean, nothing as important as World Junior Bs, that's for sure. Of course um, not. So while you were in Finland, the U.S. Challenger round uh, happened, so we have all but one team on each side decided for the U.S. Curling Championships that are going to be coming up I believe next month on the men's side, Todd Burr, Chase Sinet, who's a high performance junior team, Steve Berklid and Jed Brundage uh, qualified from the men's side, Todd Burr. That's a really good team. They finished third last year in the U S and the Brundage team lost in a tiebreaker last year. Another impressive feat from that tournament, Brandon Corbett fell down to the C bracket and then playing with three, won five straight games and then lost the C qualifier to Jed Brundage, which I feel like he deserves an award for that, right? Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Was it were they playing with three on purpose or was it an injury? I have no idea. But I know that they were they were playing with three and won five straight games in the C in the on, on the C side and then lost that sixth game that would have sent them to nationals. See now I'm wondering with like new sweeping techniques if you know like how a lot of teams just one one sweeper it right for a lot of the for a lot of the line sweeping. I'm wondering if teams will start just like the next move is actually we only need three players. I wonder if that's the future of curling. I mean that still sounds exhausting. Yeah I mean it depends, right? It's like if you've got like two people in good shape up front. And there's, there's an advantage to throwing more stones, right? Especially if it, it helps with getting your touch. So I wonder. I still, I still don't think it's an advantage. I still don't think having one person sweep that many stones is an advantage. Well, Mike Mike Farbelow is kind of like a – he's like a pretty good competitive curler in the U.S. He's won uh, – I think he won one U.S. national title. He's won the club t- championship at least once. Um like he would always, he was a big believer in three man curling. Like he'd enter bond spiels with a three man team all the time, and normally do pretty well. So, I, I to, to me, it's like is that like the next weird thing that we see popping up in in competitive curling is intentional three man teams. I mean, it's possible, but you'd have to have. I mean, your front end would have to be guys in really really good shape. I mean, it's true. But with the five rock, it's like that that second position used to be the peel position, but now it's like you peel like half as much. So because of the the five rock rules in place, so uh, I'm wondering if maybe you're like, well, we have a we have a draw and sweep guy play the first three stones, then we got like a hit and sweep guy play the next three, and you just have to skip. I mean, it's I guess it's possible, but I don't know. I don't know about playing uh, an eight-game, nine-game round-robin whole week with just three guys. Bah. If you're doing it in mixed doubles, you can do it in uh, regular curling, I say. 
And you get the extra guy jump up and sweep too, just like in mixed doubles. <laughs> I don't I mean, yeah, it's possible, but why it's one of those things, yeah, you could do it, but why would you do it? Hey, I don't know. If you've got someone who's like a really good draw player who's like a natural lead touch player, can do the tick shot and is a good sweeper, let them throw three stones. Then you have your hitter guy play three and just blast stuff. Then you have your skip just kind of make the end winning shot. Saying try it out, try it out in your Tuesday league, uh, Tuesday night beer league, and see how it goes. All right. I don't know. Are there any teams out there that that do that in their league? If you do, if you figured out that this is the new taking advantage of the inefficiency, if playing with three is taking advantage of the inefficiency in your beer league, let us know if if you found that. Um, but thanks to Matt Sussman on Twitter for pointing out what Brandon Corbett managed to do with three players. That's pretty awesome, even though they will not be moving on to Kalamazoo. And then Jared Allen, unfortunately, went 0-3 at the Challenger round. Yeah, So, but were they even close games? I didn't, I didn't catch the line scores. So. They, they, they were not. Yeah, so it's kind of what was predicted. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what. I watched the games because they one of them was on the on the Four Seasons Curling Club feed, and then the other two were on, I guess, Jared Allen's team does their own YouTube feed. I'll tell you what. They did a lot better than I would have done in if if I had entered the challenger round in my first year of curling they did a lot better than than I would have done so they're they're farther ahead than maybe they should be so we'll like we'll see i mean what it takes it's basically these are guys and it's four former NFL players if you don't know what we're talking about Jared Allen who used to play for the Vikings entered a team of four former NFL players in the US Challenger round they all kind of started within the last year curling the if if they stick with it who knows what they're going to be capable of the only thing that I worry about is these are guys who are used to being at the top of their chosen profession so now they're starting at the very bottom in a sport that is extremely tough when you first get started. So will they, I don't know, can they, can they survive this point where they're not doing as well as what they probably expect of themselves? I mean, I guess it depends how long they want to stick with it. And then my second question, like is, are they committed to being, a four NFL like all pros playing together, trying to be the best at curling, or are they committed to being the best at curling they can be? And if it's the latter, there's a lot to be said for going out, playing for a team that's a competitive team for a season or two and learning that, learn the nuances of the game from them. Right. And, uh, I, if, if I were Jared Allen and I had his money and his athleticism, I on top of what looks like he's done like a lot of good things, just seeing video of his delivery, it's, it's he's got like very, very good technique for a first-year curler. He's obviously kind of off the charts in terms of athleticism. What I would do is I would actually form a pro curling team. I would do – I would basically say I'll go hire – you know, two, three other good competitive curlers who maybe aren't quite a high performance level, but are kind of close to that level and say, I'll bankroll you for a year or two. Let's just go out on spiel and it'll all be covered by me. And let's just see where we end up. Because the big thing that competitive curlers need is sponsorship and need money. And Jared Allen's got the money. 
And uh, so he's providing the money and they're providing him with the experience, the chance to compete and to learn kind of from them. I wonder if that idea got pitched to them while broom stacking after any of those three games that they played at the challenger round. I'm sure it, I know if it had been me, I would have definitely been pitching that. I mean, I don't know. I, who knows? I'm just like, like it's, you know, he's got to be worth yeah. the tens of millions. So like the, the cost of running a, the, the cost of running an elite teams, probably, you know, like 80 to a hundred thousand dollars a year these days. But that's, you know, if, if you're Jared Allen, you got some money to burn, and you want to pursue your Olympic dream, kind of finding some other elite competitive players out there, uh, you know, uh, and seeing would, you, would they be willing to basically get a free ride at curling for a year, playing with you, uh, and trying to go for it. That would probably be the faster way to do it, is my take. And he just he basically plays lead. He's offering, in addition to bankrolling the team, he's basically offering a beast of a front end sweeper and. Uh, that actually might work. And that actually, I'd be curious to see what that happens. I would probably ruffle a few feathers, but that actually could kind of crash the U.S. Nationals. And if you've got the right team and if he's willing to also bankroll for a good coach, uh, they could do some damage that way. So that's that's what I would do if I was Jared Allen. Not that he listens to the podcast, but... Uh, well, I mean, why. I understand why they're doing it. It's for, I mean, it's the reason you or I go play in tournaments with the people we do. It's for people who want to play with their friends. Um, what they maybe could have done at the start was to all four of them play front end for two separate teams and then join up after you've kind of figured out the strategy and gotten used to this game. But no, I completely understand why they're doing it and more power to them, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not. If that, if that's, I don't know. To me, the question is, how serious is he about it? Right? Is it, is it just for fun? And if it's for fun, I don't. Yeah, it sounds like he's pretty serious about yeah. it. I don't know. About, who knows what the other three's intentions are? But I don't know. Watching them, it's watching them. They looked like guys who expect more out of themselves than what was happening on the ice. You're used to winning a lot and now you're playing something that in a certain sense, definitely probably seems easier than football. Right. But then you're losing <laughs> and probably mm-hmm. losing badly. And so, uh, like the, the nuance of the game are the hard things to pick up and, uh, you can hire the best coach in the world, but, you know, the, the best teacher is just experience and the best way to pick up experience is to go and play with more experienced players and get as many high level matches as possible. Right. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the one. And so going out with four all-stars, there's probably no pro that, that team, there's nobody on the ice who's kind of can, can pick up on some of the subtleties of strategy can pick up on, I, I would say probably they struggled with ice reading, not with it watching them, but that's, that's an art in of itself, judging weight with stones, all those things you can't really teach. Um, you can teach a bit, but you can't really teach with coaching. It's just repetition experience and perhaps picking up from, from more experienced players. And so that's, that's why I would do the bankroll a pro team for a year and see what happens. Strategy. Well, they've got John Benton coaching him, so they've got they've got the right guy. They've got the right guy coaching him. He's he's a he's a pretty good guy to have on your bench, right? Yeah, no, he's a top coach, so that's that's a shrewd move there. Uh, and then you know maybe maybe Benton floats that as a possibility. I, I, it's an interesting thing because that might 
my one thought with that is I could see a lot of people's noses getting out of joint if uh, someone started bankrolling a team. There was a guy who did this back in the 90s. Uh, he was like this rich guy in British Columbia. And he's, he hired Kevin Park and a bunch of other pro curlers to play with him for a year. And, and some curlers kind of got their their nose out of a joint over. They're just like, well, oh, that's unfair. He's just trying to buy his way to a briar. It didn't really work. That was the other part of it. But um, – you know, I don't know if why that's necessarily a bad thing if someone wants to basically pay a bunch of people to curl with him. I'm sure over the years that's happened a lot kind of informally, like on teams if someone's kind of just slid some cash to someone or, you know, just said they'd cover the cost if someone's not making as much money just to make the team work. But, um, you know, that might ruffle some feathers, but I'd also be curious to see what would happen if, if they did that. All right, so we'll see what they do. In year two, if they all four stay together and what kind of improvement we see out of them going forward with a with an off season to to work on their game. On the women's side at the challenger round, uh Ann Podel, Amory Duberstein, who's another high performance junior team, and Kim Rhyme are Kim Rhyme's teams back in the US Nationals. On the women's side, there are still two teams to be decided, and that will be decided after the upcoming USA Junior Championships, the uh, USA Curling, and I think it's a shrewd move on their part. They reserve they reserve two spots in U.S. Nationals for two junior teams that they select. Which, I mean, that probably that probably gets a lot of the senior teams upset, but I think that that really helps with development of of curling in the U.S. and development of those younger teams. So, I I don't have anything against USA curling doing that. I'm sure there's, I'm sure Brandon Corbett would probably disagree with that decision, but um, it did at the end of the day, it's going to help development of of younger curls in the U S and the U S nationals are coming up. That is February 9th through 16th in Kalamazoo. So if you're near Kalamazoo, uh, Definitely go over and watch some curling. And if you can't make it to that event, uh, it will be covered definitely by TESN. Uh, and that also brings me to another point, Jonathan. It was brought to my attention that in a previous podcast, I made some remarks that maybe made it sound like the TESN broadcast is below what it is. Um, and whether I, I, I mean, I don't even remember what I said, but. Uh, yeah, if I, if I made it sound like TSN's broadcast is of low quality, uh, that is not what I was trying to say at all. So I apologize for that. TSN, you know, when I started following this sport, the only way that you could watch the U.S. Nationals, and this was back in like 2010, 2011, the only way you could watch U.S. Nationals was TSN and not way before NBC Sports Network got involved in broadcasting this tournament. And you watch them, and every year you see that they're putting in the hours and putting in money to improve their broadcast, improve their cameras. Uh, and now it is definitely a broadcast quality uh, production that TESN uses. And they're probably, I would, I, I think it would be a tough argument against TESN being the best friend that USA Curling has, because without TESN, a lot of these events um, aren't available to the public. And they even, you you know, we see it with Stephanie Seneker's team. They go out and they help fund um, teams that are not high performance teams and get them out on tour um, and help USA Curling. So 
DSN's probably the best friend that that curling has in this country. And anything that I said that may have disparaged them or make it sound like their broadcast is any less than what it is, which is a truly professional operation, uh, I'm sorry about that. So uh, definitely watch the uh, the USA Curling Championships on DSN. That gets started February 9th out there in Kalamazoo. Anything that you're looking forward to from from those championships, any of those teams? Um, I know Todd Burr. I believe he's won a title before, right? Hasn't oh yeah, no, he was. He was. I think he was actually the last U.S. skip to beat Team Canada at a World Championship before Schuster did it. Um, that's going back a ways, but kind of like mid to late aughts. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, he's a good. He's a good player, and he's got a good team. So. Can't count him out. I don't think. And is he eligible to go? I, I never. I keep. I don't. I don't follow the nuances of USA high performance curling all anymore. I know the rules change every year. So would he be eligible to go to Worlds if he won, or is it to pull up the rankings, which I can do very quickly? So what's also funny watching these events is I usually wind up rooting for the non high performance teams. I think that's kind of common these days, right? And I, I would actually say on the women's side, I think like going into the season, I think most people thought uh, Nina Roth was probably not, was kind of like the B high performance team, but going by the slams, I mean, she keeps qualifying. Like I'm, I think she, yeah, no, I mean, she's like, she's a, like, like she's had a stronger season than Sinclair. So I think Roth probably goes into this now as the, the favorite. Um, Thanks. And Todd Burr is 112th in the year-to-date WCT ranking, so I do not believe he is eligible. Well, he's 99th in the order of merit, so I don't. I'd have to look at the rules. He may, he may or may not be eligible to be Team USA. He's but I know. I'll- and do the points you win at nationals count? Because if you won nationals, I would give you a hell of a lot of points too. So. I believe the cutoff date was prior. I think there's, there's, I don't know, there's a cutoff date prior, I think. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, we'll see. Um, it's probably going to be, as, as you're, with your prediction with the mixed doubles, you're probably right. I'm a romantic. I think that the Joes can sometimes upset the pros, but it'll probably end up being the pros at the end of the day. And as we just mentioned with Nina Roth, she did make the semifinals at the Canadian Open. She was actually the only U.S. team to play in that tournament. Um, some news out of the, the Canadian Open. You know, we saw the U.S. team and Nina Roth make the semifinals where they lost to Rachel Holm. And uh, probably the biggest news to come recently as far as professional curling goes is uh, Rachel Holman announced that she's due with her first baby uh, coming up in June, uh, which makes what she has accomplished this year even more impressive. I mean, she won, um, if you, you know, if you do the math, (laughs) she won two Grand Slam events during her first trimester. Jonathan, like all uh, competitive curlers, uh, my wife and I are also having their our first child uh, here in the first year of the quad. Uh, <laughs> you after, timed it well on purpose. We did, we, yes, we timed this well on purpose. Right. Um, and honestly, after watching what my wife went through during her fi- first trimester, uh, the fact that Rachel Holman won first uh, won two Grand Slam events during her first trimester is unbelievable because it it is rough uh so 
man, congratulations to Rachel and her husband. And wow, congratulations on doing as well as they did um, while going through that. It's different for everybody, but it's it's rough. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's, yeah. So it's, it's curious. So June's like, you get into some pretty big events late in the season in that third trimester. So I'm a bit curious how, if she does the full season or if at some point she, she takes a, a break, a baby sabbatical. Devin Hero from the CBC asked her about that. And it sounds like the only one that she's probably not going to go to is the curling world cup final in Beijing in May. Cause then you're cutting it really close. Like I'm just the husband and I'm not going out of town any weekends, like the last month of our pregnancy. Like I'm not, I'm having to bail on a bunch of, a bunch of bond spiels because I don't want to be out of town and something goes wrong. So I can't imagine wanting to fly to Beijing when you're, you're that close to your due date. So I, Doubt we'll see them in the Curling World Cup final, which means I wonder if I wonder if they'll play with somebody else, if they'll take an alternate, or if Cur- uh, Curling Canada will just replace that team. So that'll be that'll be the interesting thing for me on the curling side of things. Of mm. that uh, is what they do with that that spot for for the Curling World Cup final. Yeah, so we'll see see what. Uh... What comes with that? And I guess, I guess, when's the Worlds for women this year? Is it early April or late March? Uh, Worlds for the women is uh, middle of March. So, uh, yeah, if they if they win if they win Scotties, they might. Yeah, if they win Scotties, they might go to that. (laughs) (laughs) They might go to the Worlds. I mean, I mean, Rachel might play in that, Uh, but I mean, she is skipping, so it's a. I mean, a little easier, but still, it's still travel and it's still athletic competition for a week and a half. But on ice, uh, but we'll see. So, congratulations <laughs> yeah. to them and congratulations to all of the competitive curlers who have taken advantage of the fact that this is the first year of a quad. Yeah, <laughs> and they did it. They did well again this week. They are playing in the final. I think as we are as we are broadcasting, they are they're playing in the final of the Canadian Open. So. Uh, that team just keeps on rolling. Hmm. One team that's kind of back after uh, struggling earlier in the season is Eve Muirhead. Probably the best she's probably the best big tournament result that Eve's had since coming back from her surgery. They beat Hasselberg, Scheidegger, and Fujisawa to qualify on the A side and hmm. made the semifinals of the Canadian Open. Um, so that's good to see that team getting it going, uh, coming up with, uh, I mean, you assume that team will win Scottish championships and be back in the swing of things by the time worlds comes around. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Scottish championships isn't a problem for them. Um, it's good to see them starting to post results. So it, it, it may just have been the fact that you've got such a late start from her rehab from her surgery that, that they were a bit shaky first part of the season, but, um, They've got a few more events lined up before Worlds, so we'll see if they can kind of keep momentum going there. And it'll, it'll be good to see Team Muirhead kind of back at the top of the of the standings uh, by season's end. That's that's kind of good for curling, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think so too. Uh, on the men's side, the big news: Ryan Fry returns to Team Jacobs, uh, and they qualified for the playoffs they lost their first uh they lost their first game and then i think made i 
think they made the playoffs out of the B side. So I think they, the, the Canadian Open, which it's kind of a misnomer because it's an invitational. Um, it's the it's the only Grand Slam event that's a triple knockout format. So you basically you have to win three games before you lose three games in order to qualify for quarterfinals, which Team Jacobs did with Fry back in the lineup. Um, it really wasn't as big a deal as I kind of thought it would be. You know, you had just an initial couple of stories, but no big, no curling level media frenzy for uh, for Ryan Fry being back on Team Jacobs. But it seems like they're just kind of back to business as usual, which is good, I think. Yeah, I think that's good. I, there was a bit of concern, I think, that maybe that was they're heading towards a breakup, but it sounds like um, whatever Fry needed to do to get himself right, he he's done. So he's back with the team, and it seems like it's just back to business as usual, like you said. And then uh, we we talked about this on our last episode. Uh, team Carruthers went to Japan and went undefeated. Now they're back in North America, and... They went one and three in their return to the Grand Slam, and their only win was over a junior team, Ryland Clyder's team out of Saskatchewan, which is one of which was one of the local uh, sponsors exemption uh, teams in this tournament. So, back in North America, and another struggle for Team Carruthers. What? Um, any idea what might be going on with these guys? Well, I mean, I think that's a bit of fool's gold, right? Like Japan's a step down in uh, level of competition. So it's not like they're going to go lose to the Jared Allen rank, right? It's, it's they're, they're not posting results against. You're still seeing yourselves be on the right side of it though. I mean that mentally that's a huge hurdle. Uh, I guess so, but I'm like, like you know, like the teams they played are good teams, but where they're struggling is against slam teams, right? Like they, they've actually posted results in spiels this year. It's when they get to the slams and play the top 10, 15 teams in the world, that's where they're not getting over the line. So, um, you know, uh, that's interesting, right? It's like they, they could still win manitoba like they'll probably they'll probably they're probably still a lock for playoffs in manitoba and then i i guess the question is are their troubles so bad they can't get past gunlickson and calvert who you know at the start of the season i would have thought had no shot against this this kind of new you know reed carruthers McEwen partnership but i'm kind of thinking like gunner or calvert could could pull off the upset in the manitoba provincials right in the semis or the finals so um, they might bounce out there. And I'm not sure where they are year to date on the CTRS because um, would they then not even make the wild card game? <laughs> Which I, mean, I, think all, I think that would all depend. They're, they're probably high enough that it would just all depend on who else lost in provincials. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of interesting. Like I, I, if you told me the start of the season that there's serious questions about the Carruthers team, not making the Briar, I'd, I'd be shocked. I do. I'm curious if they blow it up and move on or, and this is the other side of it. Like the Cooey team in the first year of the quad were a bit shaky too. Like they made the briar, but they didn't make playoffs. They, they kind of, they kind of hit events in peak and then would look terrible in the next week's event. And so you wonder if like with a team like this, they need that extra year, but will they be willing to give it the extra year? That's the kind of question that, you know, like I, it's just the talents there. So, um, 
to my mind, issue number one is they've just got to stick to a lineup. And it sounds like they're just going with, with Reed skipping. It kind of seems like that's what they settle on now. Or I can't remember. They've, they've tried, I think, every single possible combination. But it looks like Reed skipping, which to my mind actually makes sense as long as Mike accepts the third role uh, and playing Vice uh, and just embraces that role, then it works. And then it's whether or not they can kind of figure out what the – the little things are that are throwing them off. So whether it's about release, whether it's about strategic differences, whether it's um, just team communication stuff or team dynamic stuff, whatever it is, they've got to kind of, you know, zero in in the next few weeks, uh, what those issues are. I mean, I, I hope they get it together and I hope that they do come out of Manitoba. Mike and Reed are two guys that, I know I watch and I root for, I like seeing those guys do well. So hopefully, hopefully they do come out of Manitoba because if they don't come out of Manitoba, it does not look like they would be in that wild card game because uh, they're the right, as of when we are, so this is before, this is January 13th. As of right now, they are the third ranked team in the CTRS in Manitoba. Uh, and then there's two Alberta teams and three Ontario teams ahead of them. So it's pretty much Manitoba or bust for that team as far as this season goes. Yeah. So even if even if they crash out at provincials, hopefully they stay together because you, I mean that team. You hate to say too good to fail, but they've got to be they're, they're they got to be too good to fail, right? Over over a long enough timeline. Uh, I mean, I don't, maybe there's, there's lots of teams that just haven't worked, right? Like the, the classic one was, um, uh, Kevin Martin, and Randy Furby, right? And you stack up the Briars next to them and it lasted all of a month. So, um, you know, there's lots, there's lots of stories out there of teams that, you know, had a bunch of stars and they just, it, for whatever reason, just did not work. Um, and in this case, you think, oh, because Reed and Mike are such close friends, it's maybe supposed to work. But, you know, being friends sometimes is, is its own challenge if you're playing at a high level, right? That maybe maybe you're not as honest as you should be. Or maybe the flip side is you kind of got the jokey kind of, you know, bro banter going back and forth. And that can throw you off, too. So, um, I, 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 to me, it's the biggest surprise. Like, I'm genuinely surprised we're here, you know, mid-January scratching our heads around about McEwen and Carruthers team. Like, like to me, I think what I thought, what I think most people thought is the Einerson team might be the one that would have troubles, but um, shows what I know because they've been great and uh, McEwen and Carruthers have not. The narrative is usually rarely what, what bears fruit, uh, at least at the beginning. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. It, that could it could be completely reversed three years from now. You could see the Anderson team completely flop at the end of the four year cycle, and you may see McEwen and Carruthers making the Olympics. I mean, we're there's a long way to go, and I hope that everyone kind of realizes that as they as they watch this team. There's there's they have a lot to figure out, but they have a lot of time to do it, which is probably the a, a good thing for them. Yeah. Um, so we talked about Rachel Homan. Um, she will be among the teams heading to the Continental Cup, which is starting 
very soon. That's going to be January 17th through 20th in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. You'll be able to watch that here in the States uh, on ESPN3, which is just the online streaming arm of of ESPN. Just go to ESPN3.com or grab the ESPN or watch ESPN app and you'll be able to see some pretty good curling. We talk about this event a few times. It's they bill it as curling's answer to the Ryder Cup. I don't think it's taken quite as I don't think curlers take it quite as seriously as golfers take the Ryder Cup, you know. And it, it and for that reason it seems like the best event to go to if you're a fan of curling because it seems like it's an event that these guys and these women kind of let their guard down. Yeah. I think it's basically curling's all-star game and we should just acknowledge that's what it is. It comes halfway through the season. You get like a bunch of stars out there. It's a good way to get a good mix of kind of curling celebrities. Yeah. And I think it's a good format too. If, it, we, if we think of it as that and just, it's like a good show uh, and there's a lot of laughs and it's actually, a, I, to me, like some of the funnier curling moments happen uh, in that there's there's still like a mixed doubles game with Don and Mike McEwen from a few years ago where it's kind of like a couple working out their issues on the ice, <laughs> which I, I just found that game like absolutely hilarious. So uh, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I, I like this. I like the scrambled concept. I like uh, all the teams that got lined up for it. So, yeah. The one, the one, so they made a few tweaks to the format. The only thing I don't like is you get a lot of mixed doubles, but I mean, that's kind of where we are now there. It, it, it's an Olympic sport now. It's, you know, it, it's being taken very seriously. You're having players that are kind of choosing to focus on mixed doubles. It's, it's a part of the sport, even if the, the four person game is what a lot of us focus on. It's to the point where probably after the next Olympics, it'll, probably be accepted as being just as much a part of the sport as the, as the four person side. So you're going to see a lot of mixed doubles at the continental cup, but the, the thing, so you're only going to see one men's and one women's traditional four, four person, um, session. There's one draw. That's the, the women's games. And there's one draw that the men's, and then other than that, you're going to see a lot of mixed, mixed doubles. You're going to see the same, um, the same skins format that they do um, on the last day where points can really change there on the last day of that tournament. But they've introduced the thing that I am most interested in seeing, which is this team scramble concept where you're, you're taking, you're forming men's teams, women's teams and mixed teams from the, the pot of players that you have available. But you can't have the same front end and the same back end playing on the same team. So if you're skip, if you're a skip, your third can't play with you. If you're a lead, your second can't play with you. So it's going to be really interesting to see which teams come out of this team scramble uh, concept. And I think it's going to be really fun to watch. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be a good, uh, I think that'll be the most interesting part of it. That's what I'm looking forward to. And, uh, I, I think that also then kind of plays up with the fact that action. I, I think the mixed doubles is also going to be mixed up teams, right? It's going to be, it's going to be rarely mixed doubles partnerships that we see in the mixed doubles event. So that'll also mean people are mixing up. Yeah. You look at, 
the players that are available and there's not a whole lot of mixed doubles partnerships that you see in in those tournaments that are available to to be chosen for this event yeah i think that's good actually i think it's fun to see the personalities mix it up they're a lot more relaxed at this event so they're a bit you see their personalities come across it's not it's not the high stress high stakes of winning a world championship or an olympic medal where that stress is going to make people perhaps not the most charismatic they can be. So uh, I say embrace it and just accept that, that it is basically an all-star game, but there's nothing wrong with that. Like I think having a good all-star game midseason is is great for this sport as it is for any sport. No Thomas Uhl's rude in this event, and that's the first time that has happened since 2007. So he's probably more appearances than anyone else in the history of this tournament, where we're not going to see him. Uh, but he, one of his players, Christopher Spy, uh, I somehow managed to, I think, convince them to make him a coach for this game. So somehow he's still getting <laughs> Las Vegas out of it, even though team. So he's, he's the smartest man in curling. He's not, he's not going to have to participate in this. Um, but he still gets the trip to Vegas. So good on him for, for finagling that. He did like this great series where he went to the Briar in St. John's, like Bompy's Briar or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Check it out on YouTube. It's pretty, yeah. you know, he's there. He's there to coach and kind of scare quotes. Like he's there for the, he's there for the bar and for the casino, right? So. I'm interested to see if they do, hopefully they do a video series similar to that with him in Vegas. Cause go, go on YouTube and find where, he went to get screeched in in St. John's and it's just the best. So hopefully we get the same thing out of, out of him in Vegas. Um, so they announced these teams back in September before the PACCs and the European championships. What do you think would have happened if one of the teams that they had selected wound up not qualifying for worlds and had to go to the new world qualifier event because that's being held at the same time as the continental cup in Naseby, New Zealand. And you'll be able to see that in the U S on YouTube, even though that's going to be probably 12, I think they're 12, 13 hours, something like that um, difference between the Eastern time zone and New Zealand. What, what kind of panic attack do you think they would have had if, uh, if one of if say Bruce Mowat's team instead of winning Euros had finished eighth and had to go to New Zealand, I I'm curious. So I mean, this this is a good segue to the World Qualification Event. I think this year they may not have gone to the World Qualification Event, <laughs> given how many teams have dropped out of the World Qualification Event. But I've I've also spoken to curlers in the past who didn't want to go to the Continental Cup. Like I I, I won't name names, but um, they were just like, they got the invite and they were gunning for other team things like Olympics were coming up or whatever. And they were like, is this really the best use of our time was kind of one of the questions. So I, I think different curlers have different attitudes towards the Continental Cup too. And some, some think, Hey, it's great. I get to spend a week in Vegas, all expenses paid. It's going to be a party, a nice break to the season. And others think, oh, I've got to do this because it's an obligation and it's actually a waste of my time. Maybe I'd be better off going out on tour, kind of racking up some points and and uh, working on my game in some way. So 
Continental Cup versus World Qualification, that's a tough one, but uh, we definitely <laughs> know that a lot, a lot of teams have turned down the World Qualification event. Yes, they have. And a couple of them would have probably been favorites, especially on the women's side. Although I think it's easy to turn it down this year because this year world's none of the points count toward qualifying for the Olympics this year, correct? It's the two years after. Yeah. So it's the the next two years of the Olympic points years. And I'm, I'm not, I've got to go, well, maybe remind me, I'll go and kind of go dig deep into the rule book for, for next podcast, but a couple things to note. So one is once the rules are set for the quad, they don't change the rules. So the world qualification event as unpopular as it is, is here for this entire quadrennial cycle. So the world's format is going to stay the same as is the, the world qualification event. So nothing's going to change until 2022 on that front. This year, it doesn't count for points for Olympic qualification points. The part I'm not 100% sure about, so I'll have to like, check later on, is I believe that you still have to qualify for a world championship in order to be eligible for the Olympic qualification event, which is the last last two spots for the Olympics on each side in men's and women's. So I believe you're correct. So I believe you, you have to have played in a Worlds at some point during the quad to be eligible for the Olympic qualifier. I think you are correct. Oh, so e- does this year even count for that or no? I think so, because I've seen teams in the Olympic qualifier that it says, you know, zero, zero points earned during the season because they went to a Worlds that didn't count for points for the Olympics. Okay. So that that's actually could be interesting because because then this Olympic qualification events, this side this world qualification events not a very deep field, right? Because a lot a lot a lot of kind of, probably the biggest surprise is is Czech Republic and Anna Kubasova turning them down, right? That's the I, I, that was a team that made playoffs at Worlds last year. They made playoffs at Worlds. They they're a, they're a circuit team. They do really well. Um, they turned it down. Um, who else turned it down? Like I, I'm not quite so Poland's got in. So Norway turned it down also, and Norway's kind of always a, a perennial kind of qualification team. And they're they're a good team because you had Kristen Skaslian, who we saw in mixed doubles at the Olympics last year. She has this year she teamed up with Marion Rorvik. Um, and that's a familiar name if you've followed international curling for for the last couple of Olympic cycles. Uh, so that that team won the B pool. So they'll be in the A pool at Europeans next year. But that also won them the right to go to this event, which they have turned down for, I, I don't know what reason, but they are not going to this event. And then they basically, I, I assume they just went down the standings and started asking teams. And then the teams that wound up saying yes were Hungary and Poland on the women's side, yeah. which I guess, means, I guess means that friend of the podcast, Lisa Farnell, also had to turn down a trip to New Zealand. Yeah, they, correct? they just think like, they're, yeah, I think they basically, yes, she told me yes. <laughs> I won't get into the minutiae okay. as to why, but it's basically it's cost and time off work and travel, right? New Zealand, it's not. If it was in Europe, you're looking at one travel day. New Zealand, you got adjusted to the time change and everything else. You got to book in several, and it's it's 
you know, it's it's not feasible. Like, like basically, once you drop out of the A pool, a lot of the teams there are entirely self-funded. They have no or very little resources from their national association. And I think to me, the Czechs, the most interesting, they, they have funding, but they made the decision that their money was better spent on other things. And so they they basically said we don't get olympic qualification points this year so we're just going to pass that up entirely and focus on other things um so if you look at the women's side it's it's china's like prohibitive favorites here right like they're 36th ranked in the world and then it's basically a european b pool teams huh. And if you look at it, so there's four European teams. I mean, the the Chinese team is far and away the best team based off of rankings on the women's side. Yeah. And then after that are the four the four European teams. Um, and the the top three of those, the team from Hungary, Polanska, uh, the team from Finland, Unakausta, and the team from Estonia, Marie Terman. They've all kind of played each other, be it at Europeans or in challenger events and they've all beaten each other. So it's kind of a toss toss up for who's going to be. I mean, I would be stunned if China isn't one of the two teams to qualify for worlds out of this event. And then it's just a complete toss up, I think between those three teams to as to who makes it to worlds out of, out of this event. Um, yeah. Cause I, I think, think I, I've watched the Hong Kong team play. I've watched one of the pack games and like there's their, <laughs> They they would not be a top tier B pool team in Europe, in my opinion, just watching their play. So I, I do I haven't seen Brazil play, but I don't think they're they don't have any ranking. I'd be surprised if they're a strong team. Um and I don't really know the New Zealand women's team at all. So uh I don't know what we're getting there. Cause they, they I mean it's another it's it's another it's another Becker. So you assume that that's just that's another member of the of that curling family that has kind of represented New, New Zealand for a while now. Yeah, except I think like yeah. So but like they're probably like they don't have any year to date world rankings, so they don't really play on tour. Um, Becker's what he's like two oh two according to your notes here. So. I mean, I, I assume part of it's that they don't really get to go out and play on tour all that much because New Zealand's pretty remote. But the flip side of that is if you don't get to go out and play on tour very much, when you play even teams that are kind of like around 100, right, but they're tour sharpened, they're going to have a bit of an edge because like the Marie Tumans and Costes will have played the Kubaskovas or the, you know, they'll, they'll probably have been played a Muirhead type team at least once or twice on tour, right? So, um that's I think it's I think actually one of the effects here is that the world qualification event, the standard won't be that great. Uh, you might get an upset and get like a team you wouldn't think of sneaking through, which might be interesting. But I, I agree with you on the women's side. It's like I'd be if China if China doesn't get through, I'll eat haggis. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> Two haggis bats going. Um, and then after that it'll sorry. The team I'm probably for is Estonia because Estonia is looking for it's one of a bunch of teams in this that is looking for their first 
world appearance, either on the men's or women's side. Um, but that's a country that's put a lot of resources into this sport that's trying to grow it. And I think it'd be really cool to see Estonia make the worlds finally. Yeah. So yeah, that'd be cool. I think that'd be a good, a good story there. And it's certainly possible. Like she's definitely, Marie Terman's definitely capable of upsetting. Uh, I don't even think it would be an upset. They're pretty evenly matched across the Terman and then Polanska. They're kind of, like you said, all, all kind of, they play each other a lot. They're all kind of pretty close on level of play. And then on the men's side, there's two prohibitive favorites. Uh, your friend, Jaap van Dorp from the Netherlands. And they played, they went to Worlds last year where they were four and eight. Uh, they finished eighth at Euros. Really the only difference on that team this year. Uh, Jaap is now f- playing third uh, while skipping. And they won a challenger event in... I think in Scotland they, earlier this month. They won the Dumfries, they're playing, right? They won the Dumfries yeah, they won the, So their form's really good right now. And then same thing with Korea, Kim Suyuk. Uh, that team finished third at PACCs, and they actually just won the U.S. Open of Curling. So that team's form uh, is also pretty good. And those are the only two teams in the top 100 in the year-to-date uh, world rankings. In fact, they're the only two teams in the top one in the top 100. So there's a pretty big, pretty big drop up, drop off uh, after uh, Yap Van Dorp and Kim Soo Yook. Uh, the only thing that I'll say is don't discount New Zealand playing on home ice. That team was pretty for that team finished fourth at PACCs and they were pretty formidable. They had a lot of, they had a lot of close games that maybe they should have won including in the bronze medal game, Kim Soo-hyuk to, to beat New Zealand for bronze, uh, had to score three and nine and then steal one and 10 to win bronze at PACC. So, Yeah, and their second's coming off just winning the World Junior Bs, so in good form. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's definitely a team to watch, but other than, other than those three, I mean, it's tough. I would have said Denmark, but they are not sending the team that won the B pool at Euros. It's a completely different team. Uh, it's not Daniel Paulson's team. So I don't know anything about them, and I don't expect much from them. Yeah, I don't know about them. I mean, Andy Reid's... So, okay, I'll say this. I think you're right. Y- Yop and Kim are like... They're both tour teams. Yop is still not posting wins against slam teams. So against top 20 teams, but any event, he, when any event he enters with lower tier teams, he normally does well. Right. So the Dumf- the Dumfries challenger is a harder tournament. If you're going off ranking than um, the, this in terms of quality of teams, right. And he did, he did kind of went through that pretty smoothly. So I, I I would anticipate both those teams qualifying. I think you you touch the one big X factor, which is travel. Like uh, it's it's a it's not a joke to travel. It's going to be like for especially these European teams, it's going to be fifteen to twenty hours travel, jet lag, crossing the date line, uh, depending on budgets and depending on how long they have to get there and get acclimatized that's uh, going to be a bit of an issue. I know like, the Reed team is in this from England, and I know some of them left like pretty early. A few of them actually arranged to do some of their work remotely in Australia just to, to get most of the way there. So they kind of factor that in, that you, you can't go to an event like this other side of the world like two days before and expect to show up and play. So 
given that a lot of these teams are coming from lower ranked federations without without much money, that might be a factor too. I think so. If there's upsets, it's it's travel is going to be a bit of the uh, the driving factor for that. I think. All right. So tell me how. Obviously, you have you kind of have skin in this game because I'm sure you would like to see England make uh, its first world championship since 1996. I'm sure you're rooting for Andrew Reid. Tell us how England makes its first uh, makes its first world since 1996 out of this tournament. Simple. Just have a good week, uh, get to the playoffs, and then upset either Kim or Yap. And, and actually, if you look at the world rankings, right, it's Jacecki from Poland is uh, slightly ahead of Reid. Right? I, I, I kind of favor Andy over Poland, having played both those teams, uh, I think, in a head-to-head matchup. not I don't think you can sleep on Poland. They're a good, crafty team. But, like, Andy... Andy's played in World Junior Championships. He's, you know, he's a good curler, a good kind of competitive curler. So it's not, uh, and he's a veteran at this point. He's played in Euros tons of times. So um, it's not going to be an intimidation factor there. So basically their path is beat everybody else, try to pull off an upset against Kim or Van Dorp, at a minimum make the playoffs. And then, you know, if you get in that one game, like anything can happen. Good luck to Team Reed. Hopefully they continue what has been a kind of a breakout year for English curling. Um, so that, that's that's good for you, Jonathan, and that's good for for growing the game as we you know we like to push that here on on this podcast. Um, I mean, anything else you want to talk about before we say goodbye and come back here in a couple of weeks to talk about let's talk about things going on at the end of the month, including you know. Curling World Cup third leg in Jönköping, Sweden, and uh, getting into the Skins game and the U.S. Championships. Uh, anything you want to talk about going into that? I mean, I think here's the one thing I'll say: I just having curled, watched curling, <laughs> and followed curling for a long time, right? Is that when the calendar flips, it kind of moves from gold to glory, right? So the the, the big cash spiels are all still before Christmas, even if the slams run kind of through the season now. But like that's the first part of the season is going out, forming your team, entering the cash spiels, trying to kind of peak at the right time. But every year <laughs> since I've been following curling, one or two of those teams that come out on fire and post like, you know, impressive numbers win a ton of money they just they just crap out when it comes to the play down time right and and there's some teams also that maybe don't do that well first part of the season but they're always kind of always always there come come uh kind of glory time if you will so i'm kind of looking forward to seeing who from the first half of the season were actually pretenders and you know what teams may have been playing possum so you know is the carruthers team able to put it together in playdowns or have what we've seen so far this season been pretty indicative of what they're like. Right. And same thing in these Olympic, the, the world qualification events, like can some of these teams pull off an upset or is, you know, is, is it Yap and Kim are just going to kind of roll through and their form's going to carry the day or can one of the other teams like a Reed or Jaseki kind of sneak through, pull off the upset and, and punch their ticket to world. So that's, what's interesting to me about this time of season is not the, the skins game to me is like, it, it was interesting back in the nineties, but with so much more curling on TV these days, I, to me, it's now it's the season of champions. It's the world qualifying for worlds. It's, it's all those events that are interesting. Not the, not the more made for TV money events like that. 
All right. So one last thing before we go, uh, and it's getting underway soon, and it'll be done before we talk again. Uh, Playdowns in your home province of Quebec are getting underway. Uh, who do you th- who who's going to win? Who do you have coming out of Quebec and qualifying? Uh, who's? <laughs> I mean, I haven't looked. I, if I look, it'll be like a very sad trip down memory lane. Who's who's entered? Yeah, give us a trip down memory lane. Looking well, at these, teams. I mean, Mike Fournier who qualified last year. I used to play him, kind of coming up. It'd be, I, I, to me, when Mike qualified for the Briar, I was, you know, over the moon. It was, I, I, I know how much he's worked at that. He's been, you know, just a competitive grinder on tour. Like, and he, like, you know, we talk pros versus Joes. He's, he, he'll admit that he's a Joe. Like, he's, he's a guy who's got, you know, a nine to five job, got a family. Curling's what he does in his free time, and so he doesn't have as much time as, say, a Gushu or a Jacobs, etc., and or the the funding to just kind of focus 100% on curling. So, for a genuine amateur to make the briar and put up, I like, put up a put it on a pretty decent showing, but also to me more importantly, like really. Like he, he imbibed the spirit of the Briar, right? Like what you know, the, with the Jamie Cooies, the kind of like they're there to win, but they're still there to have fun and kind of it's like friendly competition, which is like the history of the game. So to see Mike go back again would be great. Um, with uh, you know, with um, I don't, I'm not sure. How, I mean, I, I suppose Mar- Marty Kretz, like, see how he does, right? Skipping now, he's had a pretty good season on the cash tour, so he's probably the favorite over Fournier. But you know, Fournier is the defending champ, so those are probably your one and your two. And then, who else is up there? Is Bob Desjardins in it, or JS or Martin Furland is in this tournament? Oh yeah, the Furlands. I mean, they were tearing it up in the '90s uh, when I was there. They haven't really, you know, I, I don't know what's going on in their lives, but uh, you know, you never know. Uh, what's going on when, but they, they're a little older than me. So probably late forties. So, but veteran curlers, who know, the game really well, so they could definitely put it together. Who else? Uh, all right. This is going to be an Oklahoman trying to uh, pronounce <laughs> Quebecois name. So, so hang on with me. Uh, Martin Cret. Yeah. So he'll, I mean, I think he, I think it's between him and Mike as kind of the two front runners. That's the old Menard team. Basically the only one they lost was JM, yeah. right? Yeah, so you know that's a that's a good veteran team. Uh, so yeah, I think and I you know Mike lost a couple of times to them in like semifinals and provincial finals, like close games. But so it's, it's they're probably one A and one B. And then are you going to tell me if you played against any of these guys? As I, I name probably have names? played against most of them back in the day. So who's <laughs> uh, John Sebastian Waugh? Yeah, I, I got came up in juniors with him. Yeah, uh, Stefan Michaud. Uh, don't know him. Okay. Uh, Francois Gagné. Yeah, I, I got came up in juniors with him. Yeah. Mark Homan. <laughs> well, Mark Mark's Rachel uh, Homan's brother, so he's he's actually Ottawa based, but he's probably snuck okay. across the river. <laughs> we got to build a wall and make oh, Ontario shit. pay for it. <laughs> got to keep Quebec curling for Quebecois. Uh, no, so I mean, he's a good curler. He's a definitely. I mean, well, he won juniors with john morris back in the day like was a front-end player with johnny johnny mo when they went juniors and then again you know i I don't quite know what happened he wasn't didn't really play the circuit when i was there but uh like he'll be a good curler you probably have a good team uh steve holdaway oh is is who's the second is Stu is Stu yaxley the second on that team oh let me look now i have to like Stu Yaxley is playing second for Steve Holt. So Stu used to play with me in junior. So oh, is that the one? Kind of, he, he, 
is that the one that you kept telling me that we lost because of stew? Is that is that the stew from all of those stories? Yeah, we're so what would we lose because of stew? <laughs> 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 so Stu, like was we we played coming up in juniors and then I, at some point early 20s i guess career took over and i guess he kind of hit 40 i'm not quite sure what happened but he hit 40 decided to go back to montreal west curling club and got back into curling and uh was like pretty pretty quickly picked up in a competitive team so he's been going out spewing the last few years around quebec and you know, hitting Ontario curling tour, Quebec curling tour events, and it sounds like having a good time. So, wish him well. So, is that who we're rooting for then? Are we rooting for Team Holdaway? Uh, well, yeah, I guess. Like, I mean, I mean, I like Mike too. So, I'm like, I, I it's like, yeah. I think to me, to me, it's more a nostalgia and b like the thing that's funny and depressing is if I go look at like go look at Quebec spawn spiels on curling zone it's like anyone who was playing juniors or kind of men's competitively with me back then it's like 20 years later and it's all the same names maybe their faces are a bit wrinklier and <laughs> hairs grayer but basically the pecking order is pretty much the same <laughs> right like like jm you know he won provincials the year i was in provincials uh you know and he's basically established himself as a top curler in quebec mike Mike was always top, top competitive curler around Montreal, but would kind of hit a ceiling when it came to provincials and punching his ticket through to the Briar. And uh, the Furlands were always kind of top team. And yeah, so, you know, I, I, I suspect that Stu, Stu's about my level, so he'll he'll put on a good showing, but probably when he runs into the pros, we'll, uh, you know, hit the right. wall. <laughs> so, I have, so I have done what I set out to do, which was give Jonathan a midlife crisis. So... Hooray! And we will we will end the we will end the show as Jonathan goes and uh, drinks away his sorrows, thinking about who's playing in the Quebec Playdowns. Uh, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Uh, please, please do us a favor and subscribe and leave a review. The reviews uh, help us get found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere that people listen to podcasts. Um, the best thing that you can do for us is if you enjoyed this show, uh, tell your friends about it. Uh, we appreciate that. We also appreciate any feedback. Uh, you can get a touch in touch with us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also out there on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Instagram. Uh, so yeah, get in touch with us. We love we love hearing your feedback. Uh, and if you have any ideas on future Professor of Peel segments, please send them our way. We'd be happy to talk about those. So until then, uh, enjoy all the curling that is going to be on TV for the next couple weeks from all around the world. And we will talk to you soon. Right.